Epistle been called the Epistle of Love, and John has been called by many the Apostle of Love because he wrote so much about love. And there was so much uh, tender affection that was shown by John to those whom he loved and wrote as his little children, as we'll see from the first verse of our study tonight, terms of tender affection that indicated John's strong love for those who were his brothers and sisters, his children, if you will, sons and daughters in the gospel of Christ. The key words in this great epistle are fellowship and know and, and love. And that word fellowship is a word that we have been concentrating on in the first chapter of John, where we have looked at the various aspects of fellowship as John discusses them, the prerequisites of fellowship, the preciousness of, of fellowship, the product of fellowship is full joy, verse 4. We've also looked at the preservation of fellowship. How is it that we preserve our fellowship with God and Christ and with one another? Well, verses 6 through 9 tell us that in chapter 1. And it all comes together for us beautifully as we begin chapter 2 and are reminded that it is through the propitiation of Christ that we have that participation, which is the meaning of fellowship, joint sharing or participation. And as we begin chapter 2 tonight and look at the first six verses, John begins this segment with that tender expression again of affection for his little children. That is, those who perhaps uh, he had had a part in converting. But also, John was an older man at the time that he penned these words in these uh, epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And obviously, he's writing as John, who is the aged, to those many of whom are much younger in age, as well as obviously younger in the faith. When he writes, these things I write to you, it has to take us back to the preceding section where fellowship has been discussed and the importance of walking in the light as he is in the light, as God is in the light, in order to have that fellowship. And he's saying, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. Not the opposite reason, obviously. He said already in the first chapter that, if we continue our walk and confess our sins, he will, he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But that is not to be construed as a, an excuse for sin or as a license to sin. In fact, just the opposite is the case. And he makes that abundantly clear with the first part of this statement because here he says, I'm writing so that you may not sin. And that word sin is in the aorist tense, that punctiliar uh, action that indicates a specific sin, period. I'm writing so that you won't commit a sin. That's my goal. That's my purpose in writing, that you would not commit a sin. It's not the idea of living in sin, as will elsewhere be discussed by John, particularly in chapter 3 when we get there, and he talks about the one who's in Christ cannot sin. That is, he cannot continue to live in sin is the meaning there. But here the word sin is in the tense that indicates a specific sin or specific acts of sin. And John is saying, I'm writing so that you would avoid even specific acts of sin. That should be our goal. But realistically, we are human beings. We fall short. 
And John himself was a human being who himself realized that he needed an advocate with the Father as we need that advocate. And so he quickly adds, and if anyone sins, despite your best efforts, despite your determination because of your love for God that you do not want to involve yourself in a single sin, despite that determination and that desire, you will fall short. And when you do, you need an advocate. Have you ever heard the expression, you need a good lawyer? You need a good lawyer. There are some who get themselves in situations where that advice is certainly appropriate. You need a good lawyer. Well, that's the meaning of the word advocate here. The one who is our attorney, if you will, our lawyer, the one who advocates for us, not in, not in an earthly court, but in the courts of heaven. In other words, Jesus Christ is our advocate with the Father, toward the Father on our behalf, but he's also with the Father because he is in the presence of the Father. And because he has lived among men, because he has lived sinlessly, because he has been tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin, he has become, as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, 5, that one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He is the one who is our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The article, the, is not in the original, and so the idea here is Jesus Christ, a righteous one. A righteous one who advocates for unrighteous ones. Because we are unrighteous in the sense that we do not live in unrighteousness, but even in living as righteous followers of God and Christ, there are times when unrighteousness enters our lives. We need a righteous one who is perfect in righteousness to plead our case and to mediate and to intercede for us. And thanks be to God, we have that perfect mediator, Jesus Christ. He is the ransom price. He is the one who has reconciled us. The various terms that are used for the process by which we have access to the Father and the hope of heaven. But there's another word in chapter 2, verse 2, and that's that word we've already mentioned, propitiation. He's not only the ransom, he's not only the one who has reconciled us to God, he is the propitiation for our sins. And this particular word is used only here in 1 John 2, 2, and later in this same epistle in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. In this is love, that verse says, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the only two times this particular form of this word uh, is used in Scripture. Other forms of it are used in some other passages, but this is the only time it's used here in 1 John in this form. And what does it mean? It is the idea of appeasement. He is the one who has appeased an angry God. That's the idea that is involved in propitiation. God's anger towards sinners? No. Towards sin? Yes. God loves all mankind, but God's wrath is leveled against sin. And it takes the perfect sacrifice, the perfect offering to appease the wrath of God towards sin. Who is that perfect sacrifice? Who is that perfect appeasement? Jesus Christ. And that's the meaning here. 
that John conveys when he uses the term propitiation. He is the one who appeases God on our behalf. He renders us favorable to God is the idea. And oh, what a pleasant thought that is, to be in the favor of Almighty God. There's only one way that we can be in the favor of God, and that's through Jesus Christ. No other sacrifice, no other offering that anyone could make, no multitude of sacrifices could ever appease the wrath of God towards sin, which separates mankind from God, other than the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And it was the love of God and the love of Christ that made possible that sacrifice. How should we respond to that kind of love and to that sacrifice, the only one that could render us favorable to God the Father by keeping his commandments? And that's what John introduces in the next verse of our text tonight, that by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Incidentally, back in verse 2, when he says he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world, what does that say about the idea of predestination? What does that say about the idea of election? You see, the sacrifice is available to the whole world. No, the whole world will not take advantage of it. But it's available to the whole world. Therefore, the doctrine of election, predestination, cannot be a valid doctrine. And this is one of many, many passages in Scripture that make that abundantly clear. He's the Savior, the propitiation for the whole world. For the whole world. He is the advocate, however, for those who come to God through obedience to his gospel. And he continues to render them favorable as they have come into that covenant relationship with God and Christ through obedience to the gospel. And that's the key, obedience. How do we know that we have been rendered favorable? How do we know that we continue to be in the favor of God? John says, here it is, by this. And this phrase, by this, is going to be used again down in verse 5. It's used a few times in this epistle. By this, in this or in this way, by this manner, we know. And here's that word, know, used 32 times in 1 John. No wonder it's called the epistle of certainties, because it tells us we can know. We can know that we know him. We can know that we know him if we keep his commandments. By what? By obedience to the gospel and the continual keeping of the commandments. We live in a time, obviously, as we've often said, where there are those who contend that there are no absolutes, where nothing can be known for certain, and they're absolutely certain about the fact that we can't be certain. So they claim certainty about uncertainty, don't they, in that sense. They meet themselves coming back by the very contention that they make. But John reminds us that we can know that we have come to know him is the idea of the tense of that second 
that second word, know. It's in the perfect tense. We can know that we have come to know Him. And when he says we've come to know Him, he doesn't mean a casual acquaintance. He means an intimate relationship. We can know that we have come into that kind of intimate relationship with God the Father. How do we know it, John? If we keep His commandments. And then he says, He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. John does not mince words here, does he? He who says, and the word there is in the present tense, in other words, he who keeps saying, he who keeps on saying, I know him, that is, I keep on knowing him, and yet does not keep his commandments, is a liar. A liar. Not one who is guilty of telling a lie, a specific lie, here and there, which is obviously contrary to God's will. But he, that person, in other words, described in verse 4, can be characterized, can be labeled, in other words, as a liar, as a liar. And those are strong words. And so the contrast here is between saying and what? Keeping. It's one thing to keep on saying, I know him. But the proof is in the what? In the keeping, the keeping of his commandments. And if he does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth, equivalent to the commandments, the truth of God, that is not in him. All through this section we're studying tonight, there is a very strong continuing emphasis on the importance of continuing to be obedient to the will of God. Now, why would John emphasize this in the time in which he wrote? Well, we've already in the introduction to the book talked about the Gnostics who were present in John's time. And the Gnostics, among other things, claimed a superior knowledge. And they believed that they had this superior knowledge and they were highly spiritual. And they also believed that because of their misconceptions about flesh and spirit, and that the fact that whatever the flesh did, whatever you did in the body could not contaminate your soul, then you were free to do whatever you wanted to, but once you had become spiritual, whatever you did in the flesh, as we've mentioned earlier, did not adversely affect your spirit or your soul. Well, that's nice work if you can get it, as the expression goes, but it is totally foreign to Scripture, and John addresses that very clearly in this very section we are studying. But as we've also said before, the Bible is a beautiful book inspired of God, capable of dealing with the error in John's day, but anticipating the error for all time to come, that manifests itself in the same way, not specifically in the same doctrine of the Gnostics, but very close to it in the once saved, always saved philosophy that permeates the religious world tonight. I have here something with which you're probably familiar, many of you, that I wanted to read to illustrate the fact that indeed there are those who have taken the impossibility of apostasy doctrine and have run with it to this kind of extreme. 
to, to run with it to any extreme or to run with it, period, is contrary to Scripture. But if you want to see a classic example of how far one is willing to go in his contention that one's sins do not damn his soul, listen to what Sam Morris, a Baptist preacher, wrote some time back under the title, Do a Christian's Sins Damn His Soul to Hell? He wrote, we take the position that a Christian's sins do not damn his soul. The way a Christian lives, what he says, his character, his conduct, or his attitude toward other people have nothing whatever to do with the salvation of his soul. That is settled in Christ and Christ alone. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. He that believeth on the Son hath life, and he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth in him. He's quoting scripture here. By grace are you saved through faith, lest any man should boast. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, and he that believeth not is condemned already. And then he says, These and many other scriptures teach that man's salvation and the justification of his soul depend entirely upon his faith in Christ. The sin question is a son question. All the prayers, listen to this, all the prayers a man may pray, all the Bibles he may read, all the churches he may belong to, all the services he may attend, all the sermons he may practice, all the debts he may pay, all the ordinances he may observe, all the laws he may keep, all the benevolent acts he may perform will not make his soul one whit safer. And all the sins he, ca he may commit from idolatry to murder will not make his soul in any more danger. The justification of the human soul is through the atonement of Christ and not through the efforts of man. The way a man lives has nothing whatever to do with the salvation of his soul. The thief on the cross is an illustration of this truth. He taught nobody the Bible. He joined nobody's church. He wasn't baptized. He did not observe the Lord's Supper. He paid no debts. He rectified no wrongs. He led nobody else to Christ. He turned over no new leaves. He did not straighten up his life. He did not change his way of living. He trusted Christ. He died. But Christ assured him this day, Shalt thou be with me in paradise. Now, time doesn't allow enough time for us to scripturally refute that, but I'll guarantee you, and you well know, I'm sure, that passage after passage after passage can be quoted, including a proper interpretation of the passages he himself cited to counter and refute everything he said. Think about it. From idolatry to murder, no matter what sin you commit, it in no way can damn your soul. The Gnostics are not dead. And John wrote to deal with that error, but as he did, he addressed the error that is quite prevalent in our day as well. Again, another beautiful aspect of Scripture because it is inspired of God. But how sad it is for people to perpetrate upon humankind that kind of false teaching, 
which leads to, indeed, an attitude that says, well, I may lose the joy of my salvation. I may lose fellowship and other aspects. And he goes on to explain how you can lose all of these other things, but you'll never lose your salvation. You can lose the joy, but your salvation is secure. I've mentioned, I think, the illustration where years ago when I was preaching in Birmingham, over 30 years ago now, I guess, I was studying with a young lady in my office, and I'll never forget, she was contending for this very doctrine that I have just read from this man. Uh, she didn't use his terms, but she did say this. She believed so strongly in once saved, always saved, that if once a man was saved and he became drunk, God would never allow him to die in that condition. God just simply wouldn't allow him to die in that condition. And you know what that would suggest? The suggestion would be, if you want to live forever, get drunk and stay drunk. That's how ridiculous that position is. If you want to live forever, just either stay drunk or whatever sin it would be. In other words, God won't allow you to die while you're in involved in sin. That's what she said. Don't believe he would allow a person to die in that condition. Well, obviously we shouldn't get drunk. We shouldn't drink anything. But, alcoholic that is, but to think about how extreme people can become in their positions that they take on false doctrine. And she was very sincere. Did not doubt her sincerity at all. Very sincere. From idolatry to murder, nothing will condemn your soul. Well, we can understand why John would write, He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But then in the next verse he says, But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Again, that word know. By this we know that we are in him. And look at how he ties in love. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God. That's not God's love for us. That's our love for God that is under consideration here. And if you keep his commandments... The keeping of his commandments should be intricately and inseparably, inseparably tied to love. Remember what Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen: If you love me, keep my commandments. The motivation for commandment keeping should be love, reciprocal love. 1 John four nineteen: We love him because he first loved us. The previous verse, 1 John four eighteen, says, But perfect love casts out, keeps on casting out fear. There is no fear in love. Fear has torment, dread and terror, that is, that kind of, of fear. He who fears is not made perfect in love. But if we have been perfected in love by the keeping of His commandments, motivated by love, then we can know that we know Him. Whoever keeps His word. Truly, the love of God has been brought to maturity, in other words. Has been brought to maturity in that individual. And again, here's that phrase, by this. By this, we know 
that we are in him. Later on in 1 John 5 and verse 3, John will write, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. The commandments of God are never burdensome to the one who keeps those commandments motivated by love for God. And in the one who does that, love becomes mature and reaches that completion or maturity as a result of keeping commandments properly motivated. And then in the final verse of our study tonight, he writes, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Here's that continual emphasis on the contrast that John draws between saying and doing. The Gnostic said, doesn't matter what we do. Those who advocate the doctrine of the impossibility of apostasy, in effect, say it doesn't matter what we do. Oh yes, Sam Morris went on to say, well yes, it matters how we live in terms of our joy and fellowship and various other things, but not, not our salvation. Not our salvation. Well, how many people will settle for not being happy as long as they can ultimately be saved? I mean, it makes absolutely no sense, does it? John says, here's the consistency. He who says he abides must consistently himself walk, notice, just as he walked. And what kind of walk is it that John is calling for here? Not walking with him on the water, as Martin Luther once said, but walking with him as he walked daily among men. 1 Peter 2.21 Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. The walk is not a walk where we try to emulate miracles as so-called miracle workers are seeking to do today, unsuccessfully and yet deceiving the hearts of many, tragically. No, those miracles serve their purpose and have been completed. The walk that is enjoined upon us in Scripture, the walk that John enjoins upon us is to walk as he walked, as a humble servant, as one who came to seek and to save that which was lost, as one who gave up equality with God and suffered immensely and became that propitiation, that ransom, that perfect sacrifice to save the souls of all who will come to him through obedience to his gospel. Have you done that tonight by believing that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God? By repenting of your sins, by confessing him to be the Christ, and by being buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins? Jesus put it so simply, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16, 16. And if you've done that, but you know that you have not, to, not continued to walk as he walked, and that you're walking again with the world, whereas you once walked with the word, come home to the word, to the living word, and to the written word, come home to the Lord in repentance and confession of sin if it needs to be confessed in a public way. And we will pray with you and for you to the God of supreme love to whom you should show your love as John has reminded us here by keeping his commandments. As we stand to sing, will you come?